feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing uh, briefly our view on trigger warnings and relatedly stories about and strategies for teaching controversial and difficult topics in the classroom. Um, But some of this may be useful for just how to engage with anyone about topics like racism and police violence, sexual assault and more. Uh, But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the Internet? Hello, Rachel. Uh, You can find us on (laughs) iTunes. (laughs) Over on iTunes, Avi, uh, leave us a review. Rachel's going to read some of those in a second. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. We have a Facebook account. We have a Twitter. Always tweeting those tweets out. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a FKJ mixtape <laughs> that Rachel has put together on Spotify. How's that going, by the way? Great. We don't have a ton of followers, but it's honestly one of the most epic playlists on the internet. If you ask me, we have, we just play such good music because we have really great taste in music. So I think everybody should follow it. So you just keep adding every time we have more. Yeah, exactly. Every time we play a song, every, any song that's played on the podcast is definitely there. And there's a couple that we've referenced that also make it into the playlist. So it's good. That's amazing. It's solid. I yeah. still listen to CDs, so I don't understand what Spotify is, but I hear <laughs> right. that you should follow this. Um, yes. <laughs> and then if you uh, want to support some feminist media makers, you can donate to us directly via our website. F- our, our website is feministkilljoyspodcast.com. We also have a Patreon account. And um, thank you so much to those who have donated. I owe a couple more people uh, postcards because of your lovely donations. So those are coming your way. Um And then also we have an email, which is fkj.phd at gmail. And that's a great place to contact us if you want to discuss topics in a like more detailed fashion or you want to be on the show or whatever. Hit us up there. Yes. Cool. Um, So, yeah. So I want to read some of the new iTunes reviews we've gotten gotten. Is that I I never know if that's actually a word that we have received. received. We have received. Um, it's such a great way to help us get a little more visibility, which just helps us all around. Um, so please, if you want to just like right now, just like take a minute and pop over to iTunes and write a review. That'd be awesome. Uh, so some of the new ones are, um, this is from somebody whose screen name, little name on iTunes is Britt Stevens. And it says, one day I simply typed in the word feminist into my search bar. I found this podcast and it was exactly what I was looking for. They tackle really complex issues while keeping it light and interesting. What I love most is how they acknowledge their unique positions while carefully recognizing other perspectives and always trying to dig deeper. I wish more media would take this approach. I really love the yoga episode. I have always struggled with how I felt about my practice and was great. And it was great to hear their thoughts. Keep it up. Much love. Thank you so much, Britt. That's so sweet and just so exciting that we came up when you typed in feminist. We're glad for that. Um, we let's see, let's do another one. Uh, somebody named E Partrid. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, it's in the title. I love this was bring your notebook. And it says, thank you for always inspiring deeper thought and encouraging careful reexamination of previously assumed truth. I love it. That's what we're about is like unlearning things that aren't awesome and learning new ways to think about those things. That's what so much of this is. Yay. So it's great. It's Yay. really cool that like what we hope 
would be the podcast is the podcast because just because yeah. we're like sending out a message doesn't mean that the the receivers like take in our intended message. Hello, totally. I sound like I'm the linear model of communication theory, but uh, <laughs> exactly. <that's a> good... <laughs> encoding, decoding, oh, but it's working. Mom. The dominant yeah. message, our dominant mo- message, which is actually counter hegemonic, is yeah. being received in the dominant way. How about yeah. that? For, like trippy. Yeah. And um, then we allow for it. feedback. The feedback loop is iTunes reviews and email and other uh, social media spots. So Exactly. If anybody's confused by what we just said and you want us to do like an intro to communication studies episode, we'd be happy to do it and like nerd out about we all of the things just, we just uh, talked about. We, we would. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. let's, uh, let's move on. What, <laughs> what have you been up to? We've, we've been away for two weeks. We had, you know, busy things and tech things. So, so what's up? We technically recorded two episodes last week and put neither of them up online. So true. sorry about it's that. True. Just because we're productive feminists doesn't mean we're productive all the time. So uh, you'll hear those later. Um, <laughs> I've been having a good time. Life is good. I would say I'm overall happy. Um, just the other day at our school, I was really happy to see we had a transgender and not our gender nonconforming kind of panel, not panel, this one person came in and like talked about these issues, mm-hmm. um, which was really nice. Um, and the person identified as trans and queer. And I think for a lot of people in the audience that might've been their first exposure to a trans person, um, mm-hmm. that like w- was out as trans. And so that was right. really cool. Also, he had this like super amazing beard, like, like super full. And I was just like, really, it was just wonderful. And also he was balding. And so like you would, anyways, it was just like, a great I'm just so glad he came to our school. So he challenged a lot of sort of like like cuz he it, yeah, I'm I understand yeah. what you're saying. Sorry. Like that's probably it's... like helpful for for people who are like, "Oh, they, you know, whatever," which is also fucked up cuz like the politics of like, "Oh, if you pass, then this is like better," and that's not the point of trans stuff, but it's also like, "Hey, look, like having a full beard is like a thing that is real for people who were not assigned male at birth. Yeah. Anyway, so it was just amazing like that he was there and um, talking to the students. And what was interesting though, is where the discussion often led was a few mothers shared their um, issues with like trying to have their kids be more uh, gender nonconforming or like letting their kids, especially their boys like play with whatever they want to. But then the dads coming in and like being the gender police and like how upset Mm. these mothers were sharing their stories. Like there was some bonding going on because yeah. they're like, oh my god, I try that too. And like the dad and I'm just in my Dan Savage voice, I was like, just dump the motherfucker already. But you know, um Yeah. It's just it was it was kind of cool to see on multiple levels like that kind of stuff going on um at our school. Totally. So there's that. And then I'm also doing because of uh, my book coming out. And then I also released, I just released last week with the Minneapolis Bike Coalition, a research report on bicycle citations and related arrests um, when it's connected to a bicycle infraction. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's a very data heavy report uh, that I can link to. But um, because of that, I'm getting media requests, um, which I'm super s- stoked on, but it's just like taking up some time. Um, and I'm going to be on NPR. Oh, that's amazing, Mel. That's great. Yeah, not like the national one, but the lo- like our Minneapolis yeah, public radio. That's I get to go into the studio. That's which... so cool. I yeah, I Ugh. got to do that once. It was really fucking great. It Dude, was fun. I'm, as a radio nerd, 
I'm just yeah, like super stoked. Totally. Um, and we'll totally. try to like soak all the information out that I can. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's great. Yep. So that's, that's what's up with me. Cannot complain. How about you, Rachel? Well, um, we, you know, as, as I mentioned, I was in New York last week, uh, to see Hamilton and I'll, you know, so, so actually I don't know that we'll ever end up posting what we tried to record because the file I recorded with Logan ended up getting it, it, no sound was, it didn't record sound. Um, so I'll give you sort of the Cliff's notes version of our sort of feedback. I mean, New York city was really fun. We stayed at a friend's house in Brooklyn. We drove there. So it was really on the cheap other than the, the Hamilton tickets. Um, but it was great. Like I got to see, I got to stay, we stayed in Brooklyn. So I got to see more of Brooklyn, which was really, um, which was great. Uh, also like it is, I mean, everything they say about Brooklyn being gentrified is very true. Like it was like hipster and cute as fuck, like everywhere we went, which is, you know, fun as a tourist, but also like, uh, who's been displaced by this. Um, but yeah, Hamilton was really incredible. Um, my previously held and also post held killjoy response is that I think it's a little fucked that like it had to be a play about our musical rather about um, slave owners, like all the fucking founding fathers were complicit in slavery. And that is a bummer, especially when it's like, you know, this like incredible, you know, hip hop Broadway sensation with all POC people. Um, it's just a bummer that we have to like, we like there's, we, we know so much white history. Like I would, I want to see a musical about like Harriet Tubman or, you know, like whatever. So I still have that killjoy response to the musical. Um, but it was incredible to watch. The dancing was amazing. I really love the music more than, than before I saw it. I love it a lot. It's been in my head all week. Um, and it was just fun. And, and, um, my partner really loves it and it was really great to that and, and, and give that as a present. So, so New York city was very fun. We also saw some feminist stand up comedy, which it's been, it was so funny. Like I feel like stand up comedy was, it's been on our radar so much lately. I feel like we had John on the show and then it's just been like everywhere in my life. My friend Mark did a movie about it. I saw, you know, I don't know. I feel like comedy is more in my life more, which is great because the world is rough. And so to laugh about things is good. Um, and otherwise just, yeah, work week today, I, uh, hosted feminist book club. I can talk about that more later when I talk about what I read this week, but I'll stop talking now because we have other stuff to talk about. So that's been my week. Cool. And just to clarify the feminist stand up you saw that was two dope Queens. No, oh, that no. I'm actually, I'm going to see two dope Queens when they come to Boston. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah. When I saw that, when you told me off air, I just like assumed it was when you were going to New York. So yeah, no, they, they only record, you know, all of their episodes from season two were recorded like last spring. Oh, so that's right. There, that's right. There okay. were not any shows that were happening while we were there. Um, so that their two dope Queens is touring. I'm going to see them in January. And then, um, we saw a, a friend of my partner's uh, uh, was doing just basically like a like a stand-up show at like a local little like Manhattan comedy club. So yeah, we saw that. Rad. Yeah. So that's that. Cool. Well, on to uh, worse news. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> who's ruining the dinner party. Uh, let this week it will <laughs> once again. I don't. It's probably a repeat, uh, the presidential campaign, mm -hmm. uh, specifically Donald Trump. Yep. Also, the yeah. media. Um, so yep. uh, I'll just take the first uh, bite out of this dinner party. Um, 
by saying, actually, um, that the media, especially the liberal media, which I guess is NPR, New York Times, whatever, it's fine. Uh-huh. Um, they've been kind of, they, they're well, NPR at least is doing their, their funding drive right now. And so they're having a lot of kind of off, off the cuff conversations about coverage. And obviously they're talking about the political campaign, uh, the presidential campaign a lot this, this week. And there's this ongoing dialogue now that it's been like such an exhaustive cycle that it's like a 24 hour news cycle. Reporters can't get any sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. SNL was like making comments about that last night as well, that everybody's just Mm -hmm. so exhausted by it. And um, it just really, my reaction when I hear all that stuff is like, you, the news media, like, created that. Like, you didn't mm-hmm. have to do that. Um, but you're choosing to, like, report on every single thing that Donald Trump says. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you could have more policy-driven re- reporting if you wanted. Like, somebody, mm-hmm. one reporter was like, I remember, remember the quainter times when we would just do policy-related um, reporting. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you can like report on their policies. Obviously like Donald Trump has none, but like that would be the article then. Right. But they've right. created this. Now they've created this cycle where you have to report on all this craziness. And I feel like they're just doing it to themselves. And I just shake my head at that and just like, okay, well, it's your fault. Like, so. Yeah. I mean, I, and I hear you. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a tiny bit only to say that like, so I have I have two friends that work at the Boston Globe and they've like helped me like remember that like journalists are not the problem but like the political economy of the media is the problem. So like what we live in a world where like whatever gets clicks is what is funded. So to talk about to have a headline that says Donald Trump talks about grabbing pussies like mm-hmm. is going to get more clicks than than like you know, Hillary Clinton's like policy approach to da 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 da. So less, I think the journalists and more like the political economy of capitalist news media. Don't you think? Oh yes. That is a, that is a really good point. And I bet you the reporters would say that right back to me that it's like, it's not my problem. Yeah. It's like the editors are doing this to us. Right. So like, <laughs> right. Um, right. we'd love to do this other reporting, but that's not my news assignment. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, to like expand. So, so that's the first, so that was our, like the appetizer when Melody's at the dinner table and is like, Hey, I'm just going to like ruin everybody's joyful evening. I'm going (laughs) to, the main course is coming and I'm next. So I'm going to say, um, I'm just going to bring up how, I mean, it's for somebody like me who every, anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I like do not love Hillary Clinton, but it is, it is shocked. Like it is, I don't know if shocking is the word. It's it's very interesting to me to feel so like almost I don't know pr- not pr- not protective of her, but just m- so much more on her train because of how vitriolic and horrifying Donald Trump is, and like how likable she looks to Donald Trump, and how how much more I understand the way people are invested in voting for her because she is a woman, which I think is problematic, but I also really, really fucking get it when Donald Trump is just such a symbol of rape culture. And also here's where like the real killjoy moment comes in, but also no, it is not Hillary Clinton's fault that Bill Clinton is legitimately a rapist and a sexual assaulter, but also like, I think the most powerful thing Hillary Clinton could do for 
rape culture. And it's, it shouldn't be about her. It shouldn't be on her to like change rape culture. She's a woman, she's a victim of it. Like she, she shouldn't have to be the person responsible for it. But it would be, have been so incredible if Donald Trump would have been like in the debate, would have said, you know, well, what about Bill Clinton? If Hillary would have said, yeah, it, it disgusts me and makes me sick to my stomach that my husband is also complicit in it and was complicit in it. And I want to do everything in my power to create a world in which this is decreased, but to like acknowledge that that Bill was also part of the problem. Because if I, as like a non-Republican, non-Trump supporting person was thinking like the Trump campaign has a point, Bill Clinton is also a piece of shit. Like I cannot imagine like the fodder that created for Trump supporters. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I agree with you. And I've heard that critique as well. Um, And also that she missed even putting aside Bill Clinton, because, you know, when I was younger, I remember having the opinion of like, what and this is outside of the like, creating a rape culture, but like, what does that have to do with like, him leading the country, you know, Um, Mm -hmm, obviously, my opinion has um, matured in some ways. But you know, it's him, not her, you know, like she exactly she's the one running for office, not Bill Clinton. But I understand why it's it's trailing her around. But also that she didn't um, just take a moment and like basically what Michelle Obama did, which is like speak to women directly and just say like, this is effed up and not even needing to bring in Bill Clinton, because her argument is like, that's that's um, him, not me. I'm obviously not complicit in the rape culture that exists. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think she missed a really important moment, but I think um, not that I support this, but there's somebody within her, her crew that is saying that it's going to be a very bad move for her to like bring that up because she's just going to then have to respond to Bill Clinton questions. And if she just ignores it, then she doesn't have to bring them up. But like you said, or how, how you modeled it, it actually would be a pretty easy thing to answer, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like she could get around it, but I think, um, they might be thinking that the average American won't be able to understand such a, you know, well-constructed arguments that, you know, sometimes people just take the, you know, the easier way out and trying to understand some of this stuff. And so in terms of sound bites, that's not a very amazing sound bite. So completely. And I mean, I'll try to keep this short, but like my also, I was talking about this with my partner and like the other thing that I think is kind of a mistake is like, Actually, let's just bracket this because I I could go on a whole rant about like carceral feminism and rape and transformative justice. So I'm just going to not. Maybe we could have a whole nother episode on it. Yep. Let's stop ruining the dinner party and transition. Maybe it'll come up sort of organically in the in the rest of our discussion. Any last dinner party ruining before we go on to our main course? Well, actually, just uh, well, as the the dessert to this dinner party. um, Right. (laughs) It actually this is actually a nice transition into what we wanted to talk about today, which is. Um, teaching controversial subjects, possibly the use of trigger warnings, possibly not, um, just talking about our experiences. But um, from my standpoint as a professor, I was having, I'm, I'm having my students live tweet the debates as extra credit. And I was telling Rachel off air that if I had, if that had been like an actual an assignment where they had to get points, um, then I would have actually excused people from listening to the last presidential debate because I knew they were going to bring up his comments um, about women, which are very triggering um, and could make a lot of people upset. And 
at one point I was like, I don't even know if I can listen to this. Um, I actually mm-hmm. didn't watch it. It was easier for me to listen to. So I didn't actually have to like look at his um, face. But mm-hmm. um, I was thinking like, oh my God, if this was an assignment, I'd have to actually excuse people because mm-hmm. I would not force somebody to watch him after it had become um, very obvious that he was a sexual assaulter, even though some of us could assume that of him for mm-hmm. many, many years. This was like right. undeniable evidence. Um, and so I, w- I wouldn't actually have my students um, listen to him or right. watch him in any capacity. And so that's obviously like what we're going to talk about today. Um, yeah. So, and, and one of the, so now like for people who need transitions, we're now on our main topic. Um, (laughs) but, uh, the reason why we wanted to talk about it is it's actually come up in discussions a lot this, well, in our semester, because that's how we live our lives in semester blocks. But, um, at the beginning of the semester in August, um, the university of Chicago made a very bold statement about trigger warnings. And so that just created a bigger conversation with academics and professors about trigger warnings and also safer spaces because the university made a statement about that as well. Um, so Rachel, do you want to just kind of give a, a background on, on the Chicago thing if people aren't familiar? Yeah. I mean, Honestly, at this point, I don't remember a ton of the details about the letter, but it was basically that they didn't support trigger warnings um, as a commitment to freedom of expression. And so um, that was the UChicago thing. And more generally, this this concept of trigger warnings uh, has been sort of in public consciousness. Uh, honestly, I feel like it exploded around the time that um, there was this article in the New Republic and, and randomly, I had years ago written this blog post and ended up getting quoted because this person like Google trigger warnings and got quoted in this <laughs> new Republic article that happened in, um, 2013 or 14. It was my first year in Boston. And, um, anyway, basically it sort of exploded in public consciousness because mostly around the fact that Oberlin started, um, suggesting that teachers use trigger warnings as a way to, reduce harm to students who have experienced things that, that, um, students with PTSD basically. Um, and, or, but there was also sort of this list in Oberlin that was like, you know, things that are talking about slavery and students, ancestors may have been impacted by that and, you know, lynchings and et cetera, et cetera. Um, what the way this got taken up in popular consciousness and in media circulation was that trigger warnings was this thing that like quote unquote liberal professors put on things to like protect and shield students from having difficult conversations and that it would, you know, harm freedom of speech and these goddamn political correctness, you know, police trying to take away my freedom of expression and trying to take away my ability to teach Huck Finn and use the N-word in class in a discussion. And all of this like sort of very like I think old white man staunch like make America great again kind of bullshit um so that that was sort of the sort of public consciousness like these trigger warning PC police versus the free expression stop being so goddamn sensitive you stupid millennials that was sort of like the way it was framed what irritates the shit out of me is that trigger warnings were actually created in riot girl culture People made zines that said, hey, we want to explicitly talk about difficult conversations, specifically rape and sexual assault, but we're just going to give you a fucking heads up because if you've been raped or sexually assaulted, 
you may literally like shut down in a way that disables you from actually engaging with this. Thus, you're not going to gain anything from the scene other than like reliving your trauma. And so maybe just like peace out because like maybe the scene is better for people who like need to learn about it in a way that that isn't triggering because they're actually going to be able to engage. So for me as like a feminist who came from like, who's like been influenced by riot, riot girl culture, it's like trigger warnings are actually about explicitly having controversial conversations. It's just like giving a heads up to people who literally won't be able to engage with it because some things just shut people fucking down because they've experienced such great trauma around it that it's like, it's not, it wouldn't be valuable to sit in a class or do a reading that you couldn't even engage with anyway. So that's sort of a, that's actually quite a detailed version of the debate, but that's, that's that. Wow. Anything to add? <laughs> <laughs> no, that I would also add that um, at, at my school, I do a lot of trigger warnings for veterans as well. So if I'm going to mm-hmm. show a documentary about um, the war in Iraq and media coverage of it, it'll show coverage of the war. Um, and not actually just for veterans, but also for my Muslim students who may be coming mm-hmm. from the countries that have been destroyed because of our mm-hmm. stupid war. Um, and so, again, I just reiterate everything that Rachel said, too. And it's just really to protect the mental health of these people that have gone through these horrible situations. Um, and it's it's very salient for the stuff that we teach. Um, obviously, this might not make too much sense if you're like a math teacher or, you know, something uh, in a department that you don't talk about these things like every day. Um, but uh, it's just something that's really important to us. And like Rachel said, allows for a more intense discussion, not um, a lesser because I guess because it just gives a warning also to everybody else that we're going to have an intense discussion and it preps them mm-hmm. so they're not like blown away by it um, because mm-hmm. it you don't necessarily have to have like physically dealt with some of these things to also have kind of an adverse reaction to it depending on right. you know, your lived experience. And so it's just a good heads up. I, I mean, I'm not really sure like who finds this to be a breach of expression, freedom of expression, except for people who want to be continuing with hate speech. And like you said, like white old men using the N word, you know, exactly. Um, They're the ones that feel like they're getting silenced, but like they're not, I mean, you can still do that with a trigger warning. You can say, hi, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to use the N word. Um, So just as an FYI, if that's triggering for you, I would mm-hmm. personally never use the N-word because that's just right. not necessary. But trigger warnings right. actually allow you to do that more freely. Um, right. Right. But um, exactly. There was actually, can I talk about the University of Minnesota for a second, the build a wall story? Yeah, please. please. So this is actually um, connected to trigger warnings, but also this like safer space thing, because this is actually a perfect example of what I was just talking about. So at the University of Minnesota, the... Um, in this like walkway that we have, uh, there's a tradition of all the clubs painting the walls with their like club information. So it's often like swing dance club Tuesdays at two Mm -hmm. or like come join the Asian American club. (laughs) We'll blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like very blase, but the college Republicans at the U decided to paint, um, pro Trump stuff, which is fine because that's their candidate. But one of their, um, paintings that they made said build a wall build the wall 
Um, Mm -hmm. And people obviously got very upset by it. It got vandalized very quickly. um, So the message was covered up. And um, from what I could tell, doing some research, even though I live in the city where it happened, (laughs) um, it's still like, it's not existing anymore. Either they painted over it or um, the vandalism is still up. So, but... The president of the university, Eric Kaler, came out and made a statement that was in support of not necessarily the message of build the wall, but in support of this like freedom of expression that everybody has the right to um, say what they want in a public university. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets tricky because a lot of students then came back right away and said, except this form of speech doesn't make me feel safe here at the university. Mm-hmm. And we are mm-hmm. a marginalized group and um, like basically like we need this protection um, from this kind of dialogue that makes us feel unsafe. Um, mm-hmm. It was very emotional. There was like protests. Um, but again, I was reading some articles about it. And even like in the journalism department, one of the people, one of the like head journalism professors, again, reiterated basically what Eric Kaler said, meaning like, if you want freedom of, of expression, it goes all all the way around. And so that includes Republicans. And that includes you being able to make like anti Republican statements or, you know, say what you want. So if you're going to start whittling away at this freedom of expression by attacking the Republicans, that's going to come around and bite you in the butt later. Um, when you want your freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. But then what I don't get is like, okay, but where does hate speech come in then? Because, exactly. Exactly. You know, there's like, yeah, exactly. There's the, there's this, uh, there was like a Facebook and Twitter sort of meme. Um, there's a, an amazing Facebook page and Twitter page called the son of James Baldwin. And it's run by people who sort of respond to things in the spirit of James Baldwin. And it's fucking great. And there's one of the things is, um, oh gosh, I should have pulled it up. I'm sorry, all. Um, it's something like your. We can agree because there's a lot of like we can agree to agree to disagree and still see the humanity in each other. And it's something like yeah, we can do that until your opinion dehumanizes and oppresses and silences. Actually, I just found it. Let me read it in in full. So so that's not. So we can we can disagree and still love each other. That's a response to a meme that was going around that said we can disagree and still love each other. And it says we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. And it's like, yeah, fucking exactly. Like, it's not we like free speech is it's such a gross like, and this is another reason why I wasn't like stoked about Hamilton because like the founding of our country is not something that inspires me given that, (laughs) given that it was rooted in fucking dehumanizing and oppressing so many goddamn people. Like it's not, I don't think it's valuable to fight for the right for everybody to like fucking say shit. If some of that shit is dehumanizing, oppressing, and creating violent and unsafe conditions for so many people, you know? I, I agree. Um, <laughs> and I would, I would also say, too, that um, some people might come back and argue that, um, like, okay, well, what about, you know, all of your feminist Nazi whatever they call us, um, you know, mm-hmm. that is dehumanizing the white man, you know, how they get all, <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay, but then, but then, so the answer then, if you actually do encounter that in your day-to-day life, is that like, you got to bring it back to white privilege then and gender privilege right. and that like, you cannot oppress people that like have total control over our society, Exactly. you know, exactly. And so 
that's an important counterpoint to remember. Total control and historical control. Because a lot of people are like, what do you mean by control control when a black, like a black man, you know, has the presidency and a woman might be president? Like, it's about historical legacies of oppression that have disenfranchised for, you know, centuries people in a way that means that they are always already not at the same level as white men with money specifically. So, yeah, there's no such thing as reverse racism. There's no such thing as reverse sexism because when it comes to systems of power, those people who are in positions of power are the only people who are able to create oppressive conditions. Exactly. And so then as a comparison, if we had a, you know, rah, 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 feminist uh, sign up in that hallway, it wouldn't elicit the same kind of um, oppressive messaging that if like an all men's, you know, group like came together and started talking about, you know, the like the right to the patriarchy and like rah, rah, patriarchy, like Mm -hmm. that would actually like emotionally impact us way more than like seeing a feminist sign. Does that make sense? Like totally in terms of, because they already have the power. So why are they sitting there like reconfirming their power? Um, that makes us feel less safe in these, in these public spaces. And so. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this actually reminds me, have you listened to the Solange, the new Solange album? No, but I hear it's amazing. It's amazing. And there's this like sample of this older black woman talking about how she's always thought black is beautiful. And she's proud to say black is beautiful and that it's not, it's not anti-white to say black is beautiful and how I was thinking about how if people were going around saying white is beautiful, it's like that. No, actually that would not be okay (laughs) because like there isn't this system that has told white people that they're ugly. In fact, the exact opposite, like there is a system that every fucking day legitimizes the value in your whiteness. And there is a system that every single fucking day delegitimizes the value in POC skin color And so, of course, it's fucking important and necessary for there to be movements that assert righteously and vigorously the value and importance and beauty of minority minority positionalities. Right on. Yeah. Anyway, so that's why trigger warnings are like not trying to stifle they're not trying to stifle anything that's worth saying. They're trying to stifle things that are fucking violent or they're just trying to give a heads up like one of the two. Right. Right. And you can't give a trigger warning to um, a sign that somebody's walking by every day, you know? Right. And so that's why those can't exist versus like, if I said we were going to watch um, a documentary on the Trump candidacy and it would come from a lot of Trump supporters and you're going to hear some stuff that's like very anti-Muslim um, mm-hmm. and anti-women, then like that's the trigger warning, right? So like I'm right. still playing it in my class, but I'm giving them a heads up. Right. Um, but that's in a space, you know, so then if, if you're entering a space in which trigger warnings aren't available, then that's why this conversation of safer spaces is so important. Um, and I guess it'd be worth kind of defining what a safer space is. Um, but like for me, it's just creating a, an atmosphere in which especially marginalized people feel welcomed and encouraged to participate. Um, and mm-hmm. so like having trigger warnings kind of allows for that, but also creating spaces on campus in which people feel um, welcomed and, uh, you know, wanting like 
their presence is actually like invited and wanted. Right. So, I mean, every campus probably has something like this. Um, but I remember at the U, just going back to the University of Minnesota, there was like the second floor, I remember, of the union had a bunch of club offices and a lot of them were of the marginalized um, communities. And they were going to take away that space from the students. And I remember them really fighting for it because of this need for a safer space on campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's just baffling to me that that seems so uh, controversial and like an assault <laughs> to create a safer space. It's just, it's just baffling to me that people are so insecure about their position of power that that's how it manifests. Yeah. And there's backlash to safer spaces all the time. Like at Mizzou, uh, the university of Missouri, when that the whole like concerned student of 1951, I believe um, Mm -hmm. came out and it was basically like a big fight against racism on campus. The Mm -hmm. protesters were actually creating a safer space for themselves because the media was swarming And remember when that professor tried to defend the students um, from the journalist and this gets into like media ethics, but basically those students were trying to create a safer space for themselves and it was being breached at all times because like nobody could understand why they needed a space to kind of decompress. Right. Um, And then like at our school, we have a thing called the Mosaic Center, which is where predominantly the Muslim students hang out. Um, and I know some of my white students have responded in like, well, we don't have a space like that. You know, why do they get a space? And it's like, right. Uh, the rest of the campus is their space. Like, it's right. just like, right. Exactly. A place for them to gossip and talk and like not feel the weight of other people's eyes on them. Um, and God knows what else happens, you know, when they're right. in public. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So given all that given that we give trigger warnings and still have incredibly difficult conversations, um, do we want to sort of shift into discussing uh, how we, how we do have those, those difficult conversations in our, in our classrooms and, and maybe even with people outside of our classrooms? Yeah. Yeah. So just basically how do we have these difficult conversations? Right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess um, before we transition to that, I just wanted to throw in one more thing about trigger warnings that I learned Mm -hmm. this semester, and that's with my Muslim students, actually. Um, And I would say for my um, heavily Christian students as well, that it's not necessarily a trigger, but they're not really supposed to be viewing what they refer to as inappropriate behavior. And like they can't even like vocalize what that is to me because that would be not appropriate, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I've actually had students um, leave my class, not because they're triggered, but because like there's boobs on the screen or like they talk about sex um, mm-hmm. or like that dream worlds documentary that we've discussed where it's very heavily yep. sexualized. Like yep. it makes Muslim students very uncomfortable and um, very Christian people feel uncomfortable. And um, because I am very much into making my Muslim students feel very comfortable in class because they often feel uncomfortable. I'm like now opening that up as another like kind of FYI. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though I'm also learning that Muslims, like they're not obviously not all one and the same. And so what's inappropriate to one person, another one could like sit through, you know, like, so there's varying degrees of their commitment or I shouldn't say commitment, but like, 
you know, just like everybody, some are more religious than others. Um, But that's been kind of an interesting move for me because I'm not really one to like worry too much about religion. Um, Right. Or like I kind of roll my eyes like when Orthodox people come up to me like, oh, I can't see It's like, all right, whatever. Um, Right. But I have. Well, and that's. Go ahead. No, and just that I have like a different take with my Muslim students, but I think again because they're so marginalized on campus. Totally. um, Because I don't want them to feel uncomfortable in class and not be able to engage. Um, Exactly. um, Exactly. Which is like such a testament to you know that it's not just like obviously we're both two very sex positive, you know, feminist women who think that seeing sex is actually quite a great thing. And yet you're still like using this tool as a way to like help those who, because them not watching sex scenes doesn't oppress anybody. Right. Right. Like, you know, that's not. And so it's, 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 it, it, it demonstrates that even when it like sort of goes against what we think is something that people need to be shielded from, we're still like, okay, yeah, we can use this. That's fine. Cause it doesn't like result in the dehumanization of anybody, you know? No, no. Uh, but I just want to throw that out to our fellow teachers that if you haven't already met this issue, you might want to think about your Muslim students in class and just know that they're not actually supposed to be um, watching things that are inappropriate. And again, that's very hard because they can't verbalize some of this stuff. So I have to often do it. I'm like, oh, this yeah. one will depict gay scenes. Uh, is that OK? And then they just have to right. say yes or no. But they've they've been appreciative when I've I've reached out. And so just kind right. of a, a learning tip that I thought I'd pass on to others. Um, yeah, totally. No, I think that's great. I think that's so, great. OK, but OK. Dealing with difficult conversations in class. Rachel, you do this way more than I do this semester. So do you want to kind of lead this discussion, like kind of like your, your tips and tricks? Well, sure. I'm not, (laughs) I don't know that I've been necessarily incredibly successful, but I've gotten some, I've posted about it on Facebook a couple of times and, and, and people have responded in ways that I want to start employing. I have to admit that, um, the culture of my classroom, I do very much believe I've always taught content that is controversial. I, you know, I've from day one, I've taught, that racism is real, white supremacy is real, sexism is real. Like I, that is the foundation from which we always begin. Like these things are real. This is what this class is going to be about. No matter what, even in public speaking, I'm like, some people have power to speak. Some people don't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Give me your speech. So it shows up in all my classes. I do really believe that the Trump candidacy has, um, emboldened a lot more, uh, outspoken racism, sexism, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I've, I feel like I've been inundated with a lot more blatant sort of expressions of disagreement, which in some cases is very good because I can actually address those in ways that when people are just silent in the background, because I know people have always felt it. But um, anyway, so all that is to say, it has it admittedly been incredibly difficult for me when people are saying things that feel very racist, very classist to respond as a supposedly objective, even though I try to deconstruct that a lot to sort of, you know, facilitator, um, ways that I think are helpful. If you are in a classroom, this wouldn't translate to like outside of a classroom, but one, it's always helpful to bring it back to the text that you're engaging with and discuss, you know, most every, pretty much every college classroom assigns a reading. You come back to class, you talk about the reading. So it is at the beginning of every class I teach, I say, you know, you don't have to agree with the things that we read, but you have to demonstrate an understanding 
of the approach and the theory and the analysis that this author is creating and contributing. So one way is to just a lot of times not make it about opinions and to make it about, well, what would the, how the framework that the author is using in that they're critiquing this film as a product of neoliberal white supremacy, you know, what, you know, how, how would we understand what you're saying through the sort of author's theory of, of this, you know, whatever film analysis or whatever we're talking about. So that's like one, one thing in a classroom that you can kind of say, what does the author think about that? That's one thing. What about you? <laughs> I can keep going, but, but we can sort of go back and forth. No, I feel like, um, just to kind of take a different approach, I surprisingly on my evals, evaluations, um, am told that I create a classroom in which all opinions are welcome, which mm-hmm. is surprising to me because I have opinions swirling around in my head that I obviously don't share during class. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I've mentioned this before on air that uh, this semester has been a little different in terms of like the class not really wanting to engage in crazy debates. Um, and I don't know mm-hmm. if maybe they're like sick of it from their other classes or I don't, it's just been different. Cause you know, in the past I've been like, let's talk about racial violence. And then somebody will be like, my dad's a police officer. And then it's like, mm-hmm. all right, here we go. But, um, I do think actually another trick, I guess that I will say is that, um, you know, definitely opening up the classroom so that those voices can be heard. But then what I often do is I just say, would somebody like to respond to that? Yeah, that's a great idea. That way people, you put it on the students. And so oftentimes you will be pleasantly surprised that a student will actually vocalize what you're thinking. Um, Totally. And, uh, but it's also important to have the, you know, let's say dissenting voice speak up in the classroom because otherwise, like I said, this semester discussions get really boring. You know, if Mm -hmm. like the understanding is that Trump's an idiot, then um, it's like, there's not much to talk about. You know, it's like, yeah, we all go around and say why Trump's annoying and a horrible (laughs) candidate for president. And then that's it. You know, if we all go, yeah, you're right. You know, the media is really racist and they don't, you know, they don't let people of color in, um, you know, then where does the conversation go? Whereas if somebody pipes in and says, well, you know, there's just like, the movies aren't made for people of color or like how could this plot even include people of color? You know, those comments Mm -hmm. are actually really helpful because then you can break down why a plot could obviously bring in a person of color um, and so on and so forth. So they definitely do. um, And, you know, I would say you don't want to get people on the defense because then people just get defensive and then things don't work out very well, which I know some of your I've students have, certainly had that happen, which yes, you should talk absolutely. about next, but, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Just go ahead. Take, take yeah. Take I that. mean, so uh, honestly, one of the things that gets the most pushback is when I try to like describe the fallacy of the American dream. Hmm. There are so many people that are so committed to the belief that hard work, that, that all we need to do is work hard and that, you know, there are all these success stories and that like race, you know, race doesn't matter as long as we all work hard. I love anybody that works hard and, you know, we can all be the same if we all just like, you know, aspire to, to, to this sort of American dream sort of myth. And people get really fucking defensive when I say, 
that that maybe like you, like people who are at the top didn't get there because they worked hard and maybe people who work hard aren't at the top even though they work hard and that's been um, i've gotten a lot of pushback about that and and in it there was one article that i taught that was trying to debunk it was about the movie the blind side and they were trying to debunk the sort of colorblind approach to race relations like i don't see color it doesn't matter you know, let's just have this benevolent white lady, like save the black boy and we can all be one in unity and da 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 da. And it was also at the same time debunking the myth of the American dream. And so there were two issues that people were really, really not okay with because like good white people want to, want to feel like they're not, you know, they, I think it's a lot about good white people not wanting to feel racist and that like, you know, not seeing skin color means they're not racist and being above the majority of people of color is a result of their hard work and not their white privilege um, and white supremacy in general. So that those moments, so that defensiveness, the defensiveness that I got, um, and I'm, I'm wondering now if it's okay to even like, I didn't say any direct quotes, I'm obviously not naming any students, but I hope it's okay for me to even be sharing these anecdotes, but um, that defensiveness was really, really difficult. And I did do what you suggested, which is, you know, say, does anybody have anything to respond to that? And tried to tie it back to the author. I will admit that when, you know, we had this episode about vulnerability in the classroom, those are some moments when I, when I see students get personally insulted, personally defensive. Those are moments that I'm also getting personally defensive and emotional. And so it is the and I said this on our vulnerability episode that I have occasionally in those moments responded to helping them deconstruct the idea of hard work. I bring in my own experience of seeing my mother who has worked harder than anybody I've ever known in my life, continue to, to rest at the bottom of the totem pole, despite her working multiple jobs, despite her working shit piece of shit jobs and getting paid like shit, shitty shit, treated like shit, all the things and so I often get kind of emotional when I'm talking about like for me, like hard work is people that do work that most people don't want to do. My mom works harder than anybody I know and she doesn't get compensated for that appropriately. And so sometimes occasionally I'll make headway by being vulnerable myself because they're yeah. being vulnerable, whether it's defensiveness is a form of vulnerability, right? It's like admitting that they're personally offended and insulted by something and that's showing vulnerability, you know, because they're showing emotion, right? Which is not necessarily the 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 standard of classroom discussion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't have a perfect solution. I mean, I haven't mastered it. Um, one thing I'll I'll add um, quickly is when I was sort of Facebooked about this to like a small group of of trusted peers, um, a friend of the podcast Timothy, who was also a guest, uh, talked about. He, he likes to practice. If things get heated, he'll stop the class. He'll say, okay, everyone take out a sheet of paper, write down what you're trying to say. Because, you know, a lot of times if students are sort of going back and forth, or if I'm going back and forth with a student, you know, ideas aren't being heard. There's right. not, there's a lot, there's things are lost in translation. So write down what you're trying to say, write down why it's important to you that your view is heard and understood. And then we'll regroup. Mm -hmm. And I haven't tried that yet. But I really love that idea of just pausing and just trying to put in writing what you're trying to say and why it's important. Yeah, yeah. And I would just, um, your story about 
the American dream myth. I had that came Mm -hmm. up in my class last semester as well. Like one student shared her father's opinion that, uh, you know, he's a white man. And with all this diversity talk, he's worried that he's going to lose his job to Mm -hmm. a person of color. And I've actually heard my colleagues say that as well. Like, because we're, if you're not a full-time professor, you know, you can get laid off for any reason, you know? And Mm -hmm. so, um, I'm worried. I'm not worried about this, but somebody else is worried that, you know, a person of color is going to come take their job, which is like Mm -hmm. very unlikely, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, in that moment, I got a lot more real because I was just like, Oh my God, this argument makes me so upset. And it's, Mm -hmm. our students aren't there yet to kind of comprehend that. And so, um, I also sometimes, not necessarily bring in my own experience. If it's, if it's relevant, I do, but I also say, well, you know what? I think, you know, the person of color that's trying to get this teaching job, you know, like I work with a lot of people of color and like, let me tell you their experience, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you would not understand the like crap that they get in the classroom. And so just Mm -hmm. kind of bringing in not my personal experience, but sharing other like real experiences kind of helps. Um, but I have outed myself like that I've gone to protests and stuff before. So I can Mm -hmm. be like, listen, you guys, like this is what's actually being talked about on the ground. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like at a protest, this is what they're saying. Okay. So whatever you're hearing in the media is like total lies. This is what's going on. I was there. Um, but that's Mm -hmm. only in a rare case in which I feel like the other tactics don't work. Um, because yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The, the only reason I don't out myself in that way is because I don't want students to feel like they can't share, you know? And right. so if you do some research on me, you can pretty much tell where I'm at. Um, right. But in the classroom, I'm, I'm very like nonchalant about stuff. Like I just tell people, I, I don't know who I'm voting for. And I say that all the time. It's like, you know, yeah. because I don't want, which is to. actually true for you as we discussed last couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, I think that's, I really do. I really do believe in the value of creating spaces for multiple opinions, as long as they aren't like so, you know, horribly oppressive that they harm other students in the process of being asserted. Um, and, and I will, I have to say, I was just actually just got a hold of my qualitative answers for my last semester mm-hmm. and the very first time in my entire history, cause we've talked about, we've been proud of the fact that our students have been like, I feel like everybody can express opinions. Mm-hmm. I actually got my first comment that was like, she's incredibly biased. <gasps> I feel like I couldn't speak up. So I did get oh, that no. comment and I, and I like haven't changed my teaching style. So I think something has shifted in the culture where simply saying the word racism becomes bias, right? Yeah. So, so that's a thing. Um, I, I'll also say I, I just had a coffee with a, with a professor who um, studies mindfulness and incorporating mindfulness in, in higher education. And um, that's, that's an interest of mine outside of my professional job as, as a yoga teacher and as a somewhat practicing Buddhist and as somebody who's like sort of self-care routine is interested in mindfulness. And she talked about um, assuming assuming good intentions of everybody, yeah. which is something that I do interpersonally sort of try to believe in. It's very difficult for me when I hear things that feel very racist coded, sexist co- you know coded in sexism um, or you know underlying sexism. Um, it's very hard to do that, but I do believe in the value of that again. And I think we talked about this in our ally episode, like as a white woman, like it's partly my fucking job to like fucking grin and bear racist comments. Cause like it doesn't actually directly impact 
my specific personhood. It impacts me in so far as I have friends and loved ones who have been directly impacted by violent racism. Um, but it doesn't like it should be my brunt to bear like racist comments and like sit with it and assume best intentions and assume and generously respond to without getting like feeling personally like I you know uh, I don't know the word but without taking it personally I guess like that's not my role as a teacher Um, it's harder when it's about sexism or like working class stuff or like yeah, anyway, but do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm trying to practice that. I'm trying to practice generous, generous readings of comments and assuming best intentions. Yeah, I know. But you know what I'll just say, and we should probably wrap it up after my brilliant comment, but like, I've been hearing <laughs> that too, like, I'm taking some diversity training classes at school. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that um, have also said, like, can you just assume that I like, I have the best intentions or like, I mean, well, and it's like, it's like, I feel like it's an excuse. You know, like, yeah. um, coming in this space, like, just assume that I have good intentions. It's like, no, please assume that I, like, don't know enough about, like, poverty in the classroom. And, like, if mm-hmm. I say something fucked up, like, please call me on it. Like, I, mm-hmm. it, it has nothing to do with whether I have good intentions or not, you know? And so, I agree that intent doesn't equal impact. Like, that what matters if you say something racist is fucking racist. But I guess I'm saying, like, as a, as a teacher who's getting paid to, like, facilitate this whole thing... Like, I have to, like, yes, the impact is still the same, but, and honestly, for other students, for people of color students, that impact still matters. But I guess, do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I think I, we both agree. Yeah. But go ahead. Finish. I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That, like, yes, I understand from a mental health perspective, it's important for us to, like, kind of take that mantra into the classroom. Um, I don't believe that everybody comes in with, like, good intentions or if they're trying to, right. like work out this like police killing stuff that you know they're gonna mm-hmm. because I think again like something that we've repeated before is that like the weight of education relies on you know us the white people to like figure stuff yep. out you know and so yep. I don't know I hear it too and I begrudgingly I'm like yeah okay like everybody has good right. intentions and like I don't have any problems students this semester I always have the white man talking but you know like um People seem, I think that if there are Trump supporters, they feel very silenced in society, not in my classroom. Um, but I just, I don't know. I'm not yeah. there yet. But I hear it. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. And a lot of this was classroom specific. I feel like some of the, that sort of assuming best intentions could be applied to sort of spaces outside of the classroom. Um at least in so far as, you know, it's very easy for me to be in my head, like people will say things, whether it's a student or somebody else. And for me to just be like, you fucking piece of shit racist, like, but it's not remotely productive if you say that out loud, and then shut down that conversation. And again, that's a little bit of a respectability politics, like, I have to behave politely in order to help you like push you to, to whatever particular side. But again, like, as a, as a white person in a somewhat position of privilege with a, you know, relatively, you know, middle-class appearing job, even if like my general income doesn't reflect that, like I have all these positions of privilege that enable me to, um, to have these conversations in ways, you know, that, that I can perform respectability, respectability that like, and, and like being 
kind and patient with other people in a way that I don't want to put the burden on like people in the Black Lives Matter movement who are like, they shouldn't have to do that performance. So I can do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It just goes back to our ally episode and what we talked about with that. But anyway, we're kind of getting close to time. Do we want to, what are our last sort of, do you have any last comments on difficult conversations or anything else about classroom and basically teaching in like the current political climate, I think is what kind of what we're talking about. Uh, no, I guess my only comment is that I feel, um, in my classroom that there is an assumption that if you're not for Hillary Clinton or you're not a Democrat, that you need to be quiet. Um, so it's just a new thing I'm, I'm dealing with this semester. Um, but we'll see. And that, uh, I'm just always trying to make my classroom more accessible to people. Yeah. 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 It's not an, it's not an easy job teaching and at any, at any level, but that's that. We can return to this. We can, I mean, you know, we're, we're professors. We'll always have stories about these things. And whether it's election season or not, we're always teaching about controversial issues. So I'm sure we'll come back to it. We would love to hear what our listeners, I know we have a lot of academic listeners. So if folks want to chime in about how they manage difficult conversations in a particularly political, politically tense time and in general we'd love to hear it um sorry we don't have like a perfect like here's how here's how you'd figure it out in one two three easy steps we don't have that but um i do have um i do have because this is a conversation we're having at our school a lot i do have a couple articles that i'd be happy to um link to great so that have been check our blog out yep yep cool okay so the blogs let me just give you a plug for our blog posts are getting more fun because Melody is now taking over some of the blog posts and she's, she's, you know, funnier and more fun than I am. So check them out. (laughs) Anyway, reading, watching, listening. Yep. Uh, I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, great. Hello. I'm Melody. Um, I'm or I'm uh, reading. I just read this article called generation Adderall, um, in the New York times magazine, which I don't like, but I read it anyways. Um, Mm -hmm. because all my, all of my family is ADHD. But the reason why I don't like this article is because this woman talks about how she was addicted to Adderall. Um, but she was never diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And those are the people that are not supposed to be taking it because it does get addictive for them. Um, and so it's creating some conversations online that, um, people are like, see, this is why, you know, these, this medicine doesn't work. Um, and I, you know, all of my brothers were on Adderall. And so like, I have a personal connection to it, but like, um, I wish she would have been more clear about like how it was very clear reading it, but the, now the kind of normative conversation is like forgetting that she wasn't on she right. went and she got it illegally to begin with. Um, no, right. di- and she conned her way into a, subs- a prescription, which I know was like easy to do in certain spaces. Um, yeah. So anyways, I read it. It's po- a popular article. Check it out. But like, again, not actually from the perspective of somebody that has yeah. ADHD. Although I do right. agree that um, Adderall and stimulants have been overprescribed to children to just kind of like get rid of their problems without any therapy connected to it. Mm-hmm. Like my brothers were all on Adderall, but they didn't go see a therapist. Right. So, you know, um, but that's a separate issue. You know, she was just illegally, she got hooked on it illegally. So anyways, yeah. so reading that, 
watching. Oh, I just took my students to see Snowden in the theater. It was, oh, that's so fun. Yeah, it was so awesome. My students conned me into it. Basically, they're like, we were. It was the film week. We were talking about film, and then one of my students mm-hmm. was on her phone. She's like, "Hey, you know Snowden plays at two on Thursday." That's, and that's like so well, fun. That's when we meet. So I was like, "Okay, sure." And they were all like, "What?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'll just get. I'll get it like funded like half by the school. So just bring half. You know, five bucks." That's and, so great. Yeah, so it was oh, fun. It was was it good? Fun. It was good. Um, does okay. not test. It does not pass the Bechdel test. Um, okay. It could have, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those films where people are going to say, but the plot, you know, it's like, well, Snowden's white and the journalists were all white and there's right. only one woman journalist in the room. And, you know, I could argue right. that, but they're, you know, he had a girlfriend, the girlfriend, she was living with her mom for a while. They could have had a conversation, you know, um, yeah. but it probably would go back to Snowden, but they didn't even have two women talk to each other. Yeah. On camera, so... But anyways, it was yeah. it was good from our class perspective. Okay, um, good, so. good. And then I'm listening to the NPR pledge drive. Great, <laughs> great. <laughs> Nonstop. <laughs> awesome. Um, I am reading uh, what I just finished reading for a book club, um, a book called The Real Wealth of Nations by Rian Eisler, um, which is basically uh, a feminist economic analysis of the state of things that um, talks about caring economics specifically um, and like specifically discusses the ways in which economists and capitalists and people who make decisions about things should value caring labor. Um, So she takes, she really takes capitalism to task for being super sort of masculinist, masculinist, rather individualist, um, not thinking about the well-being of, of individuals. Um, but she also takes Marxism to task for not thinking about gender, which I think has been kind of refuted by a lot of feminist Marxists, but whatever, we'll put that aside. And really talks about like valuing and paying for uh, things like mothering, um, other, uh, taking care of, you know, sick people, um, just valuing caring, caring labor. And, you know, so things like thinking about how teachers and social workers should maybe make more money since they like that human capital is so important. And the well-being of human beings is so important and that capitalism actually destroys the well-being of human beings. And so that's not actually productive. So it's kind of like a, it's actually quite a, uh, pro making money approach to caring that it's like, Hey, this is actually better for creating robust economies. Whereas I'm as a Marxist, I'm usually like, who cares about robust economies? Like just make sure everybody has their equal share of like, da da da. So it's, it's quite, it feels like quite useful for sort of convincing people who are not just like flat out Marxists. So it was, it was good. We had a good discussion at book clubs. So that was nice. Cool. Um, watching, uh, finished season three of transparent. Don't Beautiful. Tell me anything. Don't tell me. Anything. I won't tell you anything. It's not actually that plot driven. So there's not even any spoilers really. It's oh, just okay. like lovely, lovely snippets of this family who I know a lot of people don't, don't like the characters of the show because there's a lot of like unlikable traits about them, but I just think it's, beautiful television I think the storytelling is beautiful I love that it's so there's queer and writers and directors and so there's just all this like inside baseball that like I get to like laugh at that I know straight people (laughs) don't get to laugh at and I love that Mm -hmm. um because it's usually so opposite 
Um, so yeah, watching that, finished watching that, and then listening to the new Solange album. I'm saying it right, right? It's Solange, right? Yeah. Okay, good. I think that's, that's good. Um, yeah, we've been, um, we just got access to Hulu, so we've been watching Transparent. Um, so we're starting from the beginning, so you really can't tell me anything, but I just like love that show. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm like so happy for Mara all the time. Yeah. And like, it just, obviously like there's sad moments too, but like, it's just both Robert and I just like, just are like, oh my God, like when she just gets to be herself, it's just so amazing. And I just, we love watching it. So, um, yeah. Yes. I agree. So, uh, great. and also, yeah, all the lesbian stuff and just, uh, it's good. It's good. It's just nice to see like, you know, somewhat like some of our lived experience, like in the film or in the show, you know, like you said, it's like yep. such it's, that's usually not what happens is that like, you have to just watch hetero cis straight couples and their all their dramas. And it's just, I don't know. It's just more fun yes. this way. Totally. You totally. To see yourself. Yeah. There was TV. this, exactly. There was this, um, I think I told you, a couple episodes ago, I screened the celluloid closet in my film class and <gasps> Harvey, Harvey, so, so good. good. And Harvey, Harvey Firestein talks about how, you know, there's a sort of pitch for like LGBT cinema to be like, there, these stories aren't gay stories. They're universal stories. And, and Harvey Firestein was like, no, like they're gay stories. Like y'all, like I had to like translate straight stuff into my life. Now it's your job to translate gay stuff into your <laughs> life. They're not universal stories. They're gay stories. And I was like, preach. Like, I love it. Yes. So yeah, it's great. That's it's such great. a great documentary. It is. It's really good. I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. It's excellent. It's hard to find on <laughs> YouTube, but um, if you can. Yeah, it actually, I think it got taken down on YouTube, but um, I you got can... it from my library. Yep. Libraries. Any library could get it for you. So it's, yep, uh, it's about totally. the history of um, gay cinema and how like in the beginning they had to kind of subtly put in gay and lesbian plots that only gay and lesbians could read into. So it was cool. Yeah. Or that's how they framed yep. it. Queer people. But I mean, they were just yep. referring to it as gay and lesbian then. So Yeah. Yeah. Great. Cool. All well, right. look, we stayed, we stayed really on time for the most part. We're a little over, but here we go. Um, WTF. Power. Bye. I tried to put one in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hand. I am a credit card bill. Thought a new dress would make it better I tried to work it away But that just made me even sadder I tried to keep myself busy I ran around in circles Think I'd make myself dizzy I slept it away I sexed it away I read it away
I'd be feeling clearer. I travel 70 states. Thought moving around make me feel better. I tried to let go my lover. Thought if I was alone, then maybe I could recover. To write it away, I'll cry it away. Don't you cry, babe. Yeah, it's like 